uh, today is especially um, significant in the life of my family in me. Um, I've just finished my fifth year here at Beach Haven. It was five years ago. Well, I didn't mean for that to happen. <laughs> Thank you. I, we, we appreciate that. Uh, but uh, I remember when, when we arrived, we, we got here uh, to our new home in late December, and Bob and Judy Moeller drove up, and the first thing they said was, welcome home. And that was perfect. Uh, we, we have found our home here. And uh, I'd always had something of a restless spirit after a few years in a ministry, and God would direct us someplace else. But uh, the day you all voted to call me as pastor that first Sunday in December of 2014, the restlessness was gone. And I'm afraid you're stuck with me for the rest of my life. <laughs> yeah, if you and the Lord will have me, this is where we'll be. So it's, uh, it's marvelous. Uh, it, it's time for some evaluation and some vision casting. And I want to do that this morning using Mark 12:37 as a theme. Now, if you're a guest with us today, let me say that usually uh, I take a passage and just expound the passage that's there. I'm going to do something a little bit different today. I, I'm going to preach a textual sermon where the text will set the theme, and then I'm going to develop some uh, points along with that. Uh, but usually, uh, I, I simply take a text and expound on that. And uh, the, the, the text uh, drives the content of uh, the message. And uh, truth is, as I'll use so many scriptures today, you can open up in the Bible anywhere, and I'll get there eventually, okay? So it'll be one of those messages. Uh, it's also a message uh, that's going to go a little longer than usual, and uh, some of you don't think that's possible, but oh, it is. And uh, I wanted you to be aware of that. That's why we sent you an email uh, this week towards uh, that uh, end. But Mark chapter 12 and verse 37 happens to be uh, our text this morning. But before we read it, I want to say I love being the pastor of Beach Haven Baptist Church. And let me tell you a few reasons why. One is, is that the transition between Dr. Sims and me has worked. And it's worked marvelously well when it usually doesn't. After a pastor follows a pastor that's been here uh, more than 30 years, the next pastor is usually an accidental interim pastor. And he'll last two to three years because he's so different than the previous pastor. But you had a transitional pastor who's one of the most brilliant men in the country, one of the most godly and useful and strategic men in the country, Joel Sutherland. And Joel did a very, very good job. Uh, for the two years you all had him here, and I sing his praises. And, and not only that, but Dr. Sims has been a perfect gentleman uh, all the way through, and he's not interfered, uh, but he has been available uh, when we needed him. And uh, I tell you, he's a prince of a man. And today, he is at Lexington Baptist Church helping Rusty Couch with the installment of Rusty as the pastor of Lexington Baptist Church. Isn't that great? Uh, Rusty grew up here at Beach Haven. He's the son of uh, Gene and Karen Couch, uh, two of our dear faithful members that are deeply, deeply involved and committed to Beach Haven. And uh, Rusty's a product of Beach Haven, and it's good to have him back in the area. He's always done real well in his ministry. But the first thing is, is that the transition has worked. The second thing is that our transition in worship has worked as well. And uh, thank you for doing that. I, I, I cannot tell you how deeply pleased I am with your support of our music and worship ministry. Now, uh, doesn't, doesn't mean you have to like everything. In fact, that's really beside the point. It's irrelevant. What matters is, does Jesus like it? And that's our commitment here at Beach Haven. That's where our heart is. And that's what we will always uh, say. But I, I was encouraged a couple of years ago when one of our uh, retired senior adult ladies came up to my wife and she said, you know what? I used to hate this music. And I hate to admit it, but it's growing on me. <laughs> Some of you have said, well, with all the kids that we have coming and all the college students and young families, if that's what it takes, that's what we're going to do, whether I like it or not. And thank God for that. We really got antiquated and several generations behind growing Southern Baptist churches. We're still about one generation behind growing Southern Baptist churches, uh, but we're, we're going to make our way forward through the years. And, and what we'll do is that we'll just change through the years and, uh, and develop and grow, uh, not to keep up with anybody, but to please the Lord and to give the people the tools they need to worship God and to exalt Him. And that's, uh, that's the important thing. We want Jesus to be pleased with our worship. I thank you also for supporting my leadership. I've asked you to do some bold ideas and some bold things, especially in your own personal life, and you've done that. When we create opportunities, you people show up and you hit a home run every time uh, we put you up to the plate. 
And I'm thrilled with that. I feel supported. I don't feel like anyone's really against me. Uh, if you are, please don't tell me. But um, uh, I, I don't sense that. I don't feel that. And I'm, I'm very, very grateful for that. Your stewardship has been marvelous. It really has. And I, I don't want to go into too much detail. People get nervous when you talk about money. And we'll do that February the 17th on our 60th anniversary. Uh, on February 17th, I want to cast a vision for the next 15 years for us financially. And there's some big, hairy, audacious, bold, hairy, audacious things I've got in mind for that. And I believe you can do that. But your stewardship has been marvelous. I could go into a lot of detail about that, but we've got reserves uh, that we didn't have before. We're able to take care of some things, and we uh, are very passionate about giving to missions. Uh, we're looking at doing something with our worship space in the future. Uh, it's going to cost us some money, and we're not going to pull back on missions. We're going to move forward when it comes to missions giving, and I am so grateful for that. We, we have people in our church, if you don't know, who if uh, for some reason they're not able to give or they, they, they're not able to give in a timely way, it breaks their heart. They, they don't fear giving. They fear not giving. That's the most remarkable thing. And I'm very grateful to you for that. Thank you for all the outreach that you've done. That is a signature of uh, Beach Haven, that we do outreach and that we do uh, communicate with people. Uh, we try to make friends with them when they come on the property and in the community. And that's becoming something that is unique here. I had one woman tell me a couple of years ago, she said she visited one church in the area for six months. And not only did she not meet the pastor of the church, she never met a member. No one spoke to her for six months. And she showed up in our foyer one Sunday, the first Sunday she was here, and uh, Sherry Michelle and I greeted her, invited her to coffee or lunch, set up a time with her, sent her a letter the next day, a text that afternoon. She got a call from a Sunday school teacher. And I'm finding out that these simple measures are things that are not happening in other places. We, you know, I'm just going to be honest with you. You're all modest and humble, more modest and humble than what I'm about to indicate, okay? So don't take this the wrong way. But you people just show up in people's lives like anyone's going to like you. Like, what's there not to like? Crying out loud, I'm a human, you're a human, all right? I'm in Georgia, you're in Georgia. I'm in Northeast Georgia, you're in Northeast Georgia. You're standing somewhere near Athens, I am too. You've been to Beach Haven, I've been to Beach Haven. You know, what's there not to like? And I appreciate that attitude about you. That really means a lot. You're not out there undermining my work and our vigorous uh, outreach that comes from the pastor's home and the pastor's office and the staff uh, offices and staff homes. Thank you for doing that. Uh, I, I want to applaud our senior adults as well. You have seen an awful lot of changes, and some of them uh, that, that created momentary trauma, but you've seen some big changes in the last 10 years, and here you are. Here you are. Now, some hung around that didn't agree because they, um, they uh, were waiting for the thing to collapse. And I want to thank you for disappointing them. Thank you so much. Then the demographics of our church have been really, really neat. About 60% of our people when we arrived were over the age of 50. And now 60% are under that. In fact, I think 60% of them are under 12. I mean, <laughs> we got kids coming out everywhere. It's just remarkable. But, uh, and they're more on the way. Let me say, I can't uh, violate confidentiality. But uh, what, what you'll see is uh, you'll see, um, you, you look in the worship center and, and how that uh, shakes down. And it's the most remarkable thing. More than 60% of our people are now young people in um, uh, preschoolers, children, students, and, and college students and their families. And I'm going to be addressing that in just a moment. But thank you for that work. And, and some of you who have been here for many years, you've made room for them to take leadership. And it's not hard. We don't have to fight you uh, over territory. We don't have to do that. And I'm just, I'm really, really grateful for that. So this morning, what I'd like to do with that, congratulations, I'd like to... Um, uh, look at the text, and I want to cast a vision for the next two years. And then February 17th, we'll be looking at the next um, two, five, 10, 15 years as well. Mark chapter 12, verse 37 uh, is our text. I want to read it, then I want to give you the context, the content, and the crowd real quickly, and uh, then we will move on from there with the vision. Uh, in verse 37, J Jesus says, Therefore David himself calls him Lord, how is he then his son? And the common people heard him gladly. Now, if you have the New International Version or English Standard Version, it says the large crowd or the crowd heard him 
gladly. Uh, the King James and New King James, the common people heard him gladly. And both are accurate. Because with the large crowd there at Passover, the larger the crowd, the more common it is. More common people are there. But I want to pick up on that theme here in the text. And the common people heard him gladly. And I want to address the subject this morning, making the common people glad. Making the common people glad. Uh, I hope others will be happy to us, uh, with us. I'm not trying to make enemies, but we're not here to impress a preaching faculty. We're not here to impress a music school. We're not here to impress a denomination. I, I hope they will be impressed, and most of them are pretty easy to impress, okay? But we're here in order to make the common people glad within the boundaries of the Word of God, and that we will do. Now, the context here in chapter 11 through 14 is this. Jesus is in the last week of his life, and he's actually stirring the pot. His time has come to be crucified, and he is provoking religious leaders to put him on the cross. He wants to get to the point during this time in Jerusalem where the city population has swelled because of the Passover and pilgrims coming to Passover. He wants to make it to where they can't stand him anymore, and they got to get him killed. That's what Jesus is trying to do from chapter 11 through chapter 14. And if you'll read that, you'll, you'll find that chapters 11 through 14 are divided into two sections. Number one, he provokes them with his answers and his teaching, and then he gives them permission to crucify him. Uh, read those chapters carefully, and you're going to find that to be the case. So Jesus here is being somewhat provocative, and the scribes come up to him, and they say, uh, they, they speak with him, and Jesus then speaks to them and gives them a question. He asks the question, how in verse um, uh, 35, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Uh, because Jesus quotes Psalms 110 verse 1 to uh, prove that. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, David himself calls him Lord. How is he his son? Now, you, you get that, don't you? How is it that the son of David, the son of God, the Messiah, <coughs> on one hand, is the son of David, the offspring, the descendant of David, who comes after David, on one hand, and yet, on the other hand, is the Lord of David? I don't know a father anywhere in the world that would make his son his Lord. I'm not doing it. But this is precisely what Jesus is asking. How is it? Let me pose that question to you. How is it that the son, offspring of David that comes after David, is actually the Lord of David? Because he's both. He's Lord and man. He's God and man. So he's putting it to them, and what he's doing is that he's implying his identity. That's the content here. Now, what he does is that he puts the screws on the scribes. He embarrasses them. He backs them up into a corner in front of this large temple crowd that is there for worship. Jesus steps in in the midst of all the pomp, circumstance, and ceremony, and he takes over. Jesus took over, and oh God, it would be great for Jesus to take over in some churches. And that's what he does here. That's what he does here. He takes over, and look at verse, uh, the end of verse number 37, and the common people heard him gladly. Uh, Jesus was not the kind of speaker, preacher, or teacher who had mastered the art of almost saying something. He wasn't that kind. Whenever Jesus was figured, finished speaking, no one ever walked away and said, you know, I wonder what he meant by that. Or, you know, I, I couldn't understand him. No. In fact, here in this text, Jesus has an edge to him. He embarrasses these pompous scribes who are wrapped up in their tradition and ceremony instead of the reality of a walk with God. And Jesus exposes them and the common people heard him gladly. There needs to be some of that in, in just about every message. There needs to be some real serious doctrinal content like we find here with the descendant of David and the Lord of David on one hand. 
And that there oftentimes needs to be something of an edge where you're aware of what's going on in the larger culture and you just preach the truth, unvarnished, unapologetic, flat-footed, broad-shouldered, leather-lunged. There needs to be some of that fearlessness when it comes to preaching and teaching. So the common people heard him gladly. The common people understood him. The common people grasped his words. That's what happened. There is something marvelous when the people of God capture that vision and they labor to make the common people glad in the Lord. The common can be a great opportunity for gladness. I got that this morning. Today is Sarah Kate's 18th birthday. Today is her 18th birthday. And I, she got up this morning and I congratulated her. I said, happy birthday to you. And here's what she said. She said, you know what? 18 years ago today, I was planning my great escape and I pulled it off flawlessly. <laughs> what a way to describe a common birth. A great escape and she did it flawlessly. Actually, your mama did, okay? But uh, isn't that wonderful? And then she said, in an hour. Because Sherry Michelle's contractions went from 10 minutes apart to one minute apart. And in an hour, Sarah Kate was in the world. So she pulled off the great escape in just an hour. And she did it flawlessly. I think she, I think she did as well. So uh, what, what you have here then is that you have a common experience becoming marvelous. That's a great way to describe a common experience. This is what Jesus does. There's an awful lot of power in a church that gets its heart wrapped around the common people. And the question we'll be asking and answering through the course of this message is, who are the common people that we're reaching? Who are the common people? Well, the church acts like Jesus when it prioritizes the common person. And there are three things I want you to pay attention to uh, this, uh, this morning. One is the common Christ. Second is the common culture. And third happens to be the common church. What would it look like? Let me talk to you about the common Christ. Here in the text, Jesus presents himself as both God and man. Uh, he is God. He's the Messiah. He's the ruler. He's got the very nature of the Father. Colossians 1.16 then says, All things were created by him and for him. All things are to him. Every bit of life from every continent to every country to every state to every county to every city to every village to every hamlet to every family, to every clan, to every person, to every atom of life is to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ and lift him up. All things were created by him for him. It's all for him. He is God Almighty. So he prevails and we long and we thirst and we hunger for the opportunity to please him and and our greatest delight is to obey him and so we seek him in his word his word rules what we do what we think our our disposition our countenance and our our life and how we conduct our finances and our families and our marriages what we uh how we view cultural issues and how we interpret them he is Lord, and that is going to be prominent, that's going to be loud, that's going to be proud from Beach Haven Baptist Church. Jesus is the Lord. Now you can sit out there quiet if you want to. I'm going to get excited and rowdy up here. He's also man. He's completely human. When, when Jesus was born, when Jesus came into the earth, he was 100% God. He didn't stop being God. But Philippians 2.6 says he emptied himself. He emptied himself, not of his deity, but the free exercise of his privileges. And so he grew in wisdom and stature, favor with God and man. He grew. Um, Hebrews 5.8, he learned obedience by the things he suffered. He learned. And so Jesus lived a real human life without sin. And Jesus lived a life where he spoke a human language. When Jesus communicated... He spoke Aramaic and Hebrew and most likely Greek as well to where people could understand the languages. Now that's a remarkable thing and that's given us impetus to translate the Bible into more than 3,000 languages around the world. You, you cannot um, rightly translate the book of Islam, the Quran, out of Arabic into common languages. You can't do that. They, they do, but it's not an authoritative copy of the Quran, if it's in any other language, 
besides Arabic. And so the God of Islam, Allah, has sanctified and ordained only Arabic. That's not true with the Bible. God's book can be translated into all the languages of the world, anywhere there's a human being. Because God wants, when God has something to say, He says it in the language of the people, is what He does. And that's what churches need to do with their own message. They've got to do that with their words in worship and in their music. They've got to do it in the messages. They've got to do it in every bit of their communication to where the true Word of God, without changing that, is clearly understandable to the world. So this made salvation possible because God, uh, the Lord Jesus was both God and man. This made salvation possible because only man should die for sin, but only God could pay for it. Therefore, when Jesus was born, he was the God-man. When he went to the cross, he was the God-man. And he could suffer and die with a human body. A spirit can't die. But with a human body, he could die. And with a human body, he could rise from the grave. And because he's God and perfect God, he could pay for the sins of the world. And so I've got good news for you today. I don't know how you've come into this place today. I don't know what you've done that has embarrassed you and offended God. uh, Things you don't want anyone else to know. But there is enough power in the name of Jesus to cleanse it all and to make it like it never happened. That's what God can do for you today. And after I finish my message, we'll sing a song and we'll give you the opportunity to say yes to that good news. To formally give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. And you can do that today. Well, that's the common Christ, but I want to move to the common culture. We've got some challenges in front of us that make this uh, a challenge in our current place where we are. And, and before I get into common culture, let me say just a couple of things. One, if you are struggling with some kind of sexual issue or relational issue or mental or emotional difficulty, I want to assure you, you are in the right place today. You're in the right place. Whether you are struggling with the confusion of transgenderism, whether you're struggling with homosexuality, lesbianism, whether you're struggling with depression, whether you're, no matter what you're struggling with, you are in the right place. This is the perfect place for you to be here today, and we want you here. Now, you need to understand, we go by the Word of God, and we're not changing that, but oh, my soul, we no more complain about you being here than doctors do complain when there's sick people in the hospital. We don't complain about that, and quite frankly, we're all patients. I'm the lead patient. That's what I've got to do, but Jesus is the great physician, and my soul, he pulls off a great work every time he gets a hold of somebody, and they'll follow him. And so you are in the right place. Let me assure you of that because you could get confused with what I say in just a moment. But let me summarize the culture that we've got in front of us today. I I don't know any other way to put it, and I may modify this later, but this is is, um, something that I have had to get my mind around having come here from Texas. Now, I'm still a Texan, and I'm still wrapping my mind around Georgia ways of thinking, and I'm doing it. And in the last few weeks, I've had some insight, okay? But where I'm from, we walk into a place and we have the attitude, well, what's there not to like? There is no insecurity. There is no nervousness about how people are judging us. Where I come from, we don't do that. We walk into a place and we think, what's there not to like? I mean, look at me. I mean, there's a lot, <laughs> there's a lot of, <laughs> there's a lot of self-confidence where I come from. There is. And women are that way. Men are that way. So relationships flourish and start real quickly among confident people. Um, you, you people, not from there, call it arrogance. But uh, it, it really is a confidence. It is. All right. And, and, and then it reminds me of what George W. Bush said about people commenting on how he walked. They said he swaggered. He said in Texas, we call it walking. You know, that's kind of how it is. That's not true all over the world. And I've had to learn that since coming, uh, returning back to Georgia, that there is um, uh, the, the challenge there where I'm from, the temptation to be proud and independent and not listen to anybody. But those are the sins that are there. And it, it can be a problem. If I can cool someone off and get them to listen I can help them fix problems in their marriage, their family, their work, and other places. Here, I'm finding in Georgia, I've got to boost people up and lift them up. 
And I find that I end up believing in them long before they believe. I've got more faith in them than they do themselves. And so I'm having to boost people up a lot. And so what you find oftentimes is that people uh, in this section of the country tend to walk into a room and get real nervous about how other people are perceiving them. Very uptight and very nervous. And it's only gotten worse. It's only gotten worse. There is more consumption of the media and social media in Georgia than there ever was in Texas. And it really affects how people think, especially in a university town. And it's only gotten worse. You need to keep that in mind. People walk into a place and they are anxious. Anxious about how other people are perceiving them. And no one's even said hello yet. I'm afraid that in the next 10 and 20 years, it's going to grow to clinical proportions. I think we're headed towards a mental and emotional collapse if something doesn't change amongst us. All right? So uh, that's going to become a pastoral issue. Now, let me keep those two things in mind. Uh, Please keep those two things in mind as I go on. Let me get specific uh, about our culture. We're in a historical setting. We're in a historical setting where the Obergefell decision uh, insisting upon gay marriage in all the states is a reality. We're, We're also in a nation where the Department of Education under President Obama required schools to follow a transgender policy on their bathrooms. So for the first time, for the first time in American history, the federal government went after with punishment, with the courts, and now with legislation. They went against a significant element of Christian orthodoxy for the first time they went after it and really you could have stood back 50 years ago and predicted this day would come especially with some of California's marriage laws back in 1969 but that is what has happened the result is with all the consumption of the media and all the commentary that's come from it People are very nervous about churches like ours. And I got news for you. We're not changing. We're not changing what the Bible says. We're not approved to do that. That's above our pay grade. We'll suffer if we have to for our stand. But people are nervous. And so the truth is, is that there's been at least a growing half century of denigration of the Christian faith so that when people attend church today, people under the age of 50 especially, and the younger you get, the more difficult it gets, attending church today is now an act of courage on the part of some. We had some folks uh, here a couple of months ago who wore a hat into the worship center. I didn't say a thing about it, and we're not going to. Thank God they're here. I don't care if you wear a hat in the building or not. The Bible doesn't say either way. In fact, Jewish men are supposed to wear a yarmulke. So we, we won't be saying anything about that because they have, in an act of courage, attended a church that has a building that is not subtle. Have you ever noticed that about our church building? Our church building is not subtle, is it? At all. It's not subtle at all. So that is what is taking place historically. Church attendance is now an act of courage for many people under the age of 50, and even for some over. There's a second element of our context, and that is this, technological. Uh, there is a, there's been an explosion of technology that is used to denigrate Christian churches, and I see it on my Twitter feed every day. I follow some atheists and follow their comments and follow some other social commentators, uh, even some that have written some really good works, and it is very difficult for them not to denigrate Bible-believing churches. There's a third element, and that's the traditional church. This is not your fault, not your fault at all. Uh, this uh, uh, This is not something for which Beach Haven is guilty. But traditional churches, throughout the Southeast especially, are no longer associated with stability and giving and generosity and good programs, except by the insiders. The insiders think that. 
The outsiders, however, think of traditional churches differently. And it's not your fault, and it's not fair. It's not fair at all. Beach Haven through the years, really when Beach Haven was started in 1959, it was started by First Baptist, and it came out here to be a church that was different, a different kind of Baptist church from First Baptist, and that, that came to pass. We were different. We were untraditional in our starting. With our vision, ministry, some of our values, some of the things we did, we, we were different. Uh, we, we've had some traditional elements in our church life, and Beach Haven did really, really well. They did. The problem is, is that the other traditional churches in Georgia and the Southeast have hurt us. Because their tradition and how they functioned and how they acted was associated with conflict and splits and narrowness and unwillingness to change constantly firing pastors. Uh, the average stay of a Southern Baptist pastor in a church now is about three years. And it's been that way my whole ministry. Did you know that? Well, you're not accustomed to that because uh, uh, Dr. Harrison was here for seven, Dr. Griffith 14, Stuart Sims 31. They tell me I've got to be here for 62. <laughs> I, I'll stay. You'll have to prop me up somewhere, but I'll stay. I feel sorry for the guy that comes after me. But uh, in any case, that's what traditional churches have done. Traditional churches are so full of conflict and small-mindedness that it has turned off the Southeast United States. And that's not your fault. Traditional churches have ruined and spoiled tradition. So listen to me. Every morning when I wake up, I am further behind than when I went to bed last night. Every morning, a traditional church wakes up if I can put it that way, it's in a hole. It's not your fault. You're not responsible for that. Beach Haven did real well with its traditions, but we get in a hole because of what other traditional churches have done. By the way, Beach Haven is not responsible for that. Beach Haven's never had a split. We've never split. Uh, doesn't mean we always agree about stuff, but we've never had one of these church splits that churches end up having. It's been a peaceful place. It's been healthy in how it has handled uh, itself. But the traditional church has become associated with conflict, inertia, slowness, death, lifelessness, not changing, and in the last 25 years, liberalism, a departure from the Word of God. And, and so locally... Um, we start each day further behind than when we went to bed the night before uh, in a hole. And of course, you know the number one rule about being in a hole. When you find yourself in a hole, what? Quit digging. Indeed. Uh, another element about our local common culture and context, University of Georgia. As you know, the University of Georgia has experienced significant growth in its student population. Since I've been here, not because I've been here, but since I've been here, it's gone from 34,000 to 39,000 students. And the entering GPA this past fall was 4.04. How do you get above 4.0? These brilliant kids are coming in with massive credentials. Another thing that's happened locally as well is that Oconee County just this past year, the Oconee County School District was named the number one school district in the state of Georgia. Do you know that that happened to Gwinnett County a few years ago? And you know what parents do whenever they hear of a number one school district? They move there. I don't know if there's much opportunity for Oconee County to become as large as Gwinnett County in its population, but what that pretends and what that foreshadows is 20 years of constant housing and population and school growth. When we lived in Gwinnett County a number of years ago, they were opening three high schools every year in Gwinnett County. They've got a foundation that earns interest on its investments to start uh, to purchase property and to build schools. And ladies and gentlemen, that's what you're going to be looking at, something similar, maybe not that size as Gwinnett County, but that's what you'll be looking at in years to come. Uh, this pretends 20 years of growth. Now, we have seen that reflected in our own church the last five years. Our sweet spot at Beach Haven happens to be college students of the four schools in the area and families. That's where the growth has taken place here at Beach Haven. That happens to be our sweet spot. Now there's one other element of our common culture and that is what I call 
the Walmart churches. I don't mean to denigrate, but the Walmart churches. Uh, there are three large ones, mega churches with multiple sites that are moving to, towards the Athens area. One of them is 12 Stone. 12 Stone is a Wesleyan congregation. They're some of the most lovely people in the world. And by the way, when some of these larger churches come and satellite churches come to Athens, we're not going to complain about it. We're going to pray for them. We're going to applaud them. Listen, if we can get more people into churches, that's going to do nothing but help all of us because it improves the spiritual atmosphere. I'm all for it. There's no competition there. I'm going to pray God will bless them and fill them up like I'm praying He'll do for us. But 12 Stone, for example, starts a satellite congregation someplace, and then when it gets up to a 1,000, they go 15 miles down the road and start another one. They have just opened in Bethlehem, and guess where 15 miles is from up 316? Athens. And so some of the larger churches are looking at themselves and thinking, well, how can we take advantage of this opportunity as well? But that's what is taking place in the area. Ladies and gentlemen, churches that are dead, churches that are lifeless, churches that have more commitment to tradition than they do people and tradition than they do Jesus are going to find themselves empty over the next 25 years. They will. We're not going to be that way. And we are not going to become antiquated in any way. We're going to be current, contextual, and timely. So let me say this about our culture before I move on to the common church and outline some things here. Let me say this. Despite what's taking place with technology and media, the mindset, what's taking place with churches and tradition, effective leaders and churches do not whine and complain about it. That is a waste of time. And I will promise you, your staff leadership, your lay leadership, your deacon leadership will not whine and complain. We don't do that about Athens Church. We don't do that about Prince Avenue. We don't do that about Watkinsville or Redeemer. We don't do that about Classic City Church. We're not going to do it about 12 Stone when they arrive. We're going to pray for them and applaud them. We're not intimidated. We're not afraid. God's with us, and we can have a great, glorious, bright future as well. God can handle the technology. God can handle, God can handle the negativity. God can handle the image problem. Ladies and gentlemen, if he has stared down Caesar, he can stare down anything we're facing today. He's adequate for this day. In fact, listen to me. Effective churches and leaders do not whine and complain about the culture. Instead, they see and seize opportunities that the culture provides. And this is going to provide powerful opportunity for us because quite frankly, there are some things that are unique about Beach Haven for which college students and young families are thirsting. And it's right here in this place and it's going to be marvelous. In other words, we look for the opportunity. President Reagan's favorite joke, by the way, was about a mother with twin boys. And one of the boys was very negative and very critical and whiny and complaining. And the other boy would wake up uh, and look like um, a uh, local satellite of the sun. I mean, he was just brilliant and bright. He was excited about everything. And she did an experiment with him. She had a psychology degree. And so she takes one, the, the uh, real negative and critical boy, and she puts him in a room full of new toys. And she gives him 30 minutes, and she's going to come back and check on him in a little bit to see what he's done with the toys. Well, the, the bright child, the child that is, uh, and they're both bright, intelligent, neat kids, but the one that is real excited and enthusiastic about life, she puts him in a room full of uh, fertilizer. That's what she does. And she gives them both 30 minutes, President Reagan used to say, and she comes back to the uh, real pessimistic kid, and he's still sitting in the same place where she left him 30 minutes before. I mean, he whines and complains about the... Uh, toys. He's afraid they'll break. He doesn't like them. He just whines and complains. Like it's the worst day in his life he got a new toy. She goes into the room full of fertilizer. She opens the door just in time to see him dive into it. And she sees bubbles on the top coming out for where he's swimming through it and making his way through it. He comes up, bursts out and dives again. And when he comes up for air again, she says, what in the world are you doing? He says, Mama, there's a pony in here somewhere, and I'm going to find him. <laughs> Listen to me. When culture changes, we don't whine and complain. 
we follow this leadership principle. Look for the pony. There's a pony in there somewhere. We're going to find him and we're going to ride him to be effective. Now let me move to the third topic and that is the common church. What would it look like? Let me give you a few things here. Number one, prayer. We cannot, we, we cannot collect all of our wisdom and all of our gifts and adequately meet the challenge that is in front of us. We've got to have the hand of God on us. And we've got to be a church that is populated from stem to stern, from left to right, up and down, with people who are on their face before God, seeking God and giving their all to Him, pleading with Him to use them to make a difference in this world. And so I'm going to start a pastor's prayer team where I'm going to have every hour of my year covered up in prayer by our members. And I'll explain more about that as the days go by. But the second thing is, we need a 24-hour prayer ministry in our church family. We've got to have that, where we've got people praying every hour, and we may want to build a prayer tower or some kind of prayer facility to pursue that. We've got to have a 24-hour prayer ministry. That's not to say that what we've been doing has not been effective. It has. When you pray, things happen, and I'm grateful for that, but we're going to have to pour it on uh, because of the day in which we're in. Let me give you some encouragement about your prayers, by the way. John 15, 7, Jesus promised, if you abide in me and my word abides in you, ask whatever you will and it will be done for you. So there's a relationship between the Bible and your prayers. If you get into God's Word and pray about what you read in God's Word and pray these things that are the will of God found in the Word, God's going to hear your prayer. Or to put it this way, if you will cherish what God says in His Word, God will cherish what you say in prayer. Marvelous. It's a prayer. The second thing is this, worship, the worship center. We've got a great, great Commission Facilities Committee that, is, uh, that you've put together, and we're studying our worship space and our facilities and how best we can make an impact on our community and fill the building with more people who do not know Jesus as Savior. That's been our charge, and I thank you for that. That's brilliant. And uh, in fact, they wrote that when I was gone to Israel and Guatemala this summer, and I, there's no way I can improve uh, what, uh, what our deacons and um, coordinating council wrote. It's marvelous. And so that's what we're looking at. And let me say to you a couple of things about uh, our future worship space. Whatever the committee brings to us, and this is just typical, whatever the committee brings to us is probably going to be larger than what you expect. It always happens that way. Second, I'm going to promote and we will vote on what they bring to us. We're not going to bring it, get a bunch of complaints, and go back to the drawing board. We're not doing that. We will bring to the floor to a vote what that committee brings to us. Usually when churches back up from that, they end up down downsizing and downscaling things and they find out in 10 or 20 years that they made a mistake in doing that. We're not doing that here. In 25 years, when some of these um, high school and college students are on these committees later, when you and I are gone from here, I don't want them saying, why did they do that? I want them saying, thank God they did that. that, that that's what's going to happen with them. But that's what will take place with the worship center. They'll bring a recommendation back to us at the right time. And by the way, there are no plans. There's no design. They're still building a foundation. Now, once that foundation gets laid, the work will go quickly. But I appreciate your patience, and we need more of it. But our future worship space will be a game changer. It will be a game changer. It'll be bigger than what you expect. It will not be more traditional. It will not be more sophisticated it will not be ostentatious. We will not be doing that. The current culture could not bear that. That's about the worship center. Then, the third thing is about our vision statement. Right now, our vision statement is that we will magnify Christ by building all the peoples of the Athens region into great commissionaries. I'm going to recommend probably sometime in 2020 that we make that our mission statement. And we adopt as a vision statement this particular item. And that is that Beach Haven will give every neighbor an opportunity to follow Jesus. Every neighbor around our church, every neighbor in our neighborhoods around our homes, every neighbor in Indiantown, Florida, or where we find our Guatemalan friends, and every neighbor in Takana, Guatemala, where it looks we're going to start planting a church in 2021. 
every neighbor will have an opportunity to become a follower of Jesus. Then let me talk about our worship and our worship style. Uh, the words traditional and contemporary are outdated. We don't use those terms anymore. And the battle over that is an old man, old woman battle. We don't do the not old in that sense, but they started battling that 25 years ago. We're not battling that anymore. Those words are no longer relevant. The kind of worship that we're going to do at Beach Haven will be contextual. Uh, the first context happens to be God. What, what is God pleased with? That's the driving question. The second question is what, what does our community need? And the third is what can our church do? What does our church need to exalt the Lord? So our worship will be common, current, and local. We've moved on beyond the traditional contemporary debate. Uh, you handled that rather well, at least since I've been here. I thank God for that. But those are no longer relevant items. We will not do traditional worship. It will not become more traditional. We're not going to do contemporary worship either. There may be some overlapping, but what we're going to do is take note of our context. The context around the throne where Jesus sits, the context in our community, and the context within our uh, church family, and where those overlap, that will be our sweet spot in worship. Now, the biggest driving element of our context in our community happens to be college students and families. We are going to meet their need, and we won't be apologetic about it at all. Then, distinctives. We're going to be distinct as well. There might be some elements in our worship that are similar to other churches. That's okay. You can't hardly miss that and avoid that. Okay? Uh, one happens to be the humans that are there. But here's what's going to be distinctive about us. And I'll summarize it in one word and give you three expressions for it. The one word that I have found that is very descriptive of Beach Haven is this. You are real. There is no pretense with anyone here. I don't know anyone here, and I've not suspected anyone here is trying to impress anybody but Jesus. Can I tell you what a relief that is? You, you don't like fakery. You don't like pretense. And I can't tell you how much I appreciate that. That means the world. Do you know that does not exist in all churches? I, I listen once in a while to sermons online, and I just can't stand it when it feels like the preacher is trying to be something that he's not. Oh, it is so disheartening. You're not that way. You're real. So here at Beach Haven, let me tell you what's real about us. You really worship. Your worship participation as a congregation is much higher than the average congregation. At best, in most congregations, you can expect 40 to 50% of the people to engage in worship. At Beach Haven, it sits at 85%. We are extremely involved in worship as compared to other congregations. Even our men sing. Do you know how unusual that is in churches? Our older adults sing. And they're tired. They don't have as much energy in their diaphragm as they once did. It's hard. <laughs> I'm tempted, but let me go on. The hour's late. But the participation is, is marvelous. So worship on the platform is not a production. It is in some places. And there's some of those elements that are involved. So it's not to distract the people. It's not a performance. So some of those elements are involved so as not to distract the people. But there is, you know what's cool? There's worship taking place up here. And there's a whole lot of it out here. That's real. If you really want to worship and get more than a concert... And more than a production, here's where you get it. Real worship. There's a second thing. Real love. In fact, your love is ambitious. I constantly hear, almost weekly, about how you scoop up guests and embrace them. And there is constant ministry taking place among our people during the week. It is the sweetest and marvelous thing to be your pastor. It is very hard. Now, it might happen once in a while, so I don't want to overpromise, but it is very hard to fall through the cracks at Beach Haven. Very hard. 
real love. And, and it's across generations. It's across generations. We have got a number of families, even senior adult families, that have college students in their home every month. Of course, they feed them. <laughs> but that, that's what takes place. Now, my bride and I have fed nearly everyone in the Northeast Georgia region in the time that we've been here. You know that. You've been in our home. But you know what? We're not alone in that. Tommy's got people over every week, and he has for more than four years. And Matt Bartlett does as well. John and Jennifer Walker have opened their home an awful lot. The choir has been to Tim's home. So uh, there's a lot of that that takes place. We're not distant from each other. Folks, we really love each other. And you know what? That's not all. We like each other. Isn't that great? So real worship, real love, and then real mission. Our people love to serve. I mean, in a church where about 400 people are present on a Sunday uh, during a month, 400 different people, you know, there's the first Sunday and third Sunday crowd, second Sunday and fourth Sunday crowd, the fifth Sunday they get confused and all show up. Fifth Sundays are big, okay? But in a church that size, we took more than 100 people, 109 people to Indian Town, Florida for a church-wide mission trip. And we're angling to take that many or more to Takana, Guatemala. In, 2000, in 2021. And people want to do that at their own expense. Do you know how unusual that is? That's marvelous. So real worship, real love, real mission, and that's what we're going to shout to the world who we are. Let me talk also, I've said a lot about um, uh, students and families. Let me talk about retired senior adult ministry. Do not get the idea that we will have less of this. Oh no, we shall have more. We'll have the best and the most ambitious retired senior adult ministry in the state. We've got to have their leadership. We need more people like Joyce Bowen and Betty Moody, who without any children or grandchildren in the church on Sunday mornings are still teaching kindergarten. That's what we need. We've got to have more of that, not less. And then student and collegiate ministry. Right now, Tommy's student ministry has gone from about 25 kids, give or take a few, to 60, give or take a few, in the time that he's been here. That movement started when he was the interim. So we've grown significantly there, and those kids have brought their parents, or their parents have brought the kids. So he's got responsibility for about 60 middle school and high school students give or take a few. Uh, he's also our collegiate minister, and that has gone from four to at least 60 when school is in. Uh, many Sundays, it's more than that. So let's say 60. So that's 120 middle school, high school, college students for which he has responsibility. Then you add to it their parents. Now, most of those students in middle school and high school have got a brother or sister who's younger, so let's not count both parents. Let's give them to the children's ministry. If you give them just one parent, give Tommy just one parent, that's at least 60 parents. 60 middle school, high school, 60 college students, 60 parents. Tommy's got responsibility for 180 people. And he's doing a knock-up job. Don't tell anybody. I don't want anybody coming after him, all right? But he's doing a marvelous work. His position and responsibility has gotten too big. So I have spoken with our deacons and our personnel committee about dividing his position into a student minister on one hand and a collegiate minister on the other. And I would like to have someone new in one of those two positions come January 1st, 2020. All right? We'll start that search probably sometime this summer, but I'd like for our church to embrace that and divide his position. Well, which one will Tommy do? We'll leave that up to him. He loves them both. And he'll have to pray about it, we'll have to pray about it, and we'll let him choose. But we will not compromise on the quality. We will not compromise on the quality of the candidate. Now, it's going to be very, very hard to find someone of Tommy's age and experience. Do you know he's a unique gift from heaven? He is. He is. He's not here, but clap loud enough to hear you in Florida, okay? Good. But we, we may need to get someone younger and maybe someone with fewer years. Um, but we will not compromise on the quality. 
of a communicator, a, an administrator, those, those areas. We will do well with that, but that's probably coming in the future. Um, let me close this by telling you about Billy Graham back in the early 70s. There was a Jesus movement that took place, and Billy Graham was always in the front of social movements and declared the gospel into that world. The Jesus movement broke loose after the disappointment years of the hippies in the 60s. And a lot of kids across the country were looking for a new day. They needed something on which to stand. And Billy Graham shows up in Dallas in 1972 at the Cotton Bowl, a stadium, and has the Jesus Expo 1972. He preaches to them, and at his age, with a coat and tie, he becomes the hero of the Jesus movement with folks that are long-haired. And the contemporary Christian movement, music movement, really got its start back then. Uh, by the way, did you know the largest crowd in Georgia Dome history before it went down was youth night of the Billy Graham crusade in 1994? Beach Haven is going to be that in this location. We're going to get out in front. And Billy was doing that with the Jesus movement of young people in 1972. And the last evening of the expo, I think they met for three or four nights, he, they had a candlelight service when the sun had gone down there in Dallas. And they lit candles and they sang some new songs, exalted the Lord there, and the light was so brilliant and bright coming out of the cotton ball that local residents called the fire department and said the stadium's on fire. And it was. It was on fire for Jesus, on fire for his word, on fire for kids. That's how we will be, and that's where I'm going to lead us, and I need your help. I think you're there. I think you're there. But that's where we're going to go, and that's where our heart is going to be. And we don't need less of you. We need more of you. Hey, by the way, speaking of fire, have you ever played with fire? Peyton's like this. <laughs> um, I didn't play with fire as an adult, but I about got myself in trouble one day. I was trying to burn off some weeds between my curb and the street when I lived in Alabama, and I put some gasoline on it and set the gas can way away and lit it on fire, and it did well for a while, but it was kind of a measly fire. And it wasn't getting the job done. And I thought, well, you know what? Let me take this gas can and start pouring the gas down. And it was on a hill. Wait, wait, it's on a hill. It's on an incline. And I did that. It's the first time in my life I've ever done something like that. And I poured it down, that incline. And that fire began to race and chase me towards the gas can. And, you know, I was dumb for a moment, but I woke up right then. I saw that fire coming up following the fumes to the gas can, and then I did something brilliant. I took it and flung it <laughs> as far away from me as I could. Now, you know the danger there. If it tips over and spills, I've set the whole neighborhood on fire. But do you know what happened? It just happened to land on the bottom. And there was a little fire coming out the end because it doesn't burn the fuel, it burns the fumes. Well, I went on and I grabbed a towel and carefully, nervously came over and dropped it over the gas can and the flame was a wet towel and the flame was doused. What I want you to understand is that in order to make things right with God today, you need to understand that your life is on fire with sin and guilt and a future that lacks hope because it does not have Jesus Christ. Job said in Job 42.6, I abhor myself and I repent in dust and ashes. You need to this morning abhor the fact that you're outside of Jesus Christ and turn away from it like you would turn away from flame that threatens your life. Are you willing to do that today? Then you trust. I trusted the wet towel to douse the flame. You need to trust Jesus Christ. And trust his death and his resurrection to make you right with God. And if you will do that, God will make you right with himself. And we want to give you that chance this morning.
Why don't you do that and open up your heart? Others of you need to become part of Beach Haven. You've already made that decision, but you need to follow Christ in baptism and become part of our church. Others of you, God's calling you to ministry or missionary service. Uh, maybe there's some other need that you've got, but we're going to be here. We're going to receive you as we quickly stand right now. Let me pray after you stand. Please stand with me, and we're going to pray. We're going to ask you to respond. Father, thank you in Jesus' name for the good news of your word.